Hello, and welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi, Arnika. Thank you for um, meeting with me and for this chat. This is going to be one of the first podcasts for Pacific Roots Magazine, so I'm really excited. Well, I'm excited to thank you for your interest and for having me. I'm really honored. Yeah. Also, happy Hanukkah. It's the sixth um, day of Hanukkah, correct? Right, yes. Um, tonight is the sixth night of Hanukkah. Sixth night of Hanukkah. All right. How are you celebrating? A special foods? And... Well, we haven't made any lockers yet at home, although we might this weekend, but we certainly have been lighting the menorah every night. Oh, wonderful. Any other special foods? I love, I love foods. <laughs> uh, and I've been looking at different, um, you know, in the world of plant-based Jewish mm-hmm. foods for the holidays. So I no, love the, um, the only other um, food um, that is commonly associated with Hanukkah is um, Jellyville Donuts, which in Hebrew are called Sufgan Yot. And on our website, jewishveg.org, um, we have vegan versions of, of course, latkes and also those donuts. Oh, oh and I have to say hello. Who's that behind you? Oh, this is Nala. She is the oh. official cat of Jewish Veg. Oh, okay, sweet. Yeah, and she loves being on Skype. Wait, I can see that. She jumped right up. Hi, Nala. All right. So um, well, the reason I'm talking with you is because, yes, you're the executive director of Jewish Veg, um, Pittsburgh-based, uh, correct? That's uh, correct. How long, and just uh, for just, we won't do too much organizational stuff, but how long have you been with Jewish Veg? So it's 2012. 2012. So um, I do want to read... You already know this, but for listeners and watchers who are not familiar with Jewish Veg, I wanted to read your mission statement because I think it's also wonderful. The mission of Jewish Veg is to encourage and help uh, Jews embrace plant-based diet as an expression of Jewish values of compassion for animals, concern for health and environment. Um, So anybody familiar with veganism knows that sort of trinity of values, you know, animals, health, environment. So it's a very, it's a very straightforward, but broad, all encompassing a mission statement and I love learning about um, the connectivity between Judaic tradition and um, plant-based consumption and lifestyle so I would I would love to just start out with that Um, you even have a graphic on the website what's Jewish about that dive right in and start start um start right into for listeners who maybe aren't familiar and also for me i'm learning also about plant-based eating and its roots in judaism well it's not terribly complicated it really comes down to three foundational pillars of what we call the torah or the jewish bible the first is that a plant-based diet is definitely established as the ideal so you see this in the very first chapter of the Bible, which is common to Jews and Christians, Genesis 1.29. The very first chapter of the Bible in the creation story, we are told, or God is quoted as saying, that we should eat plants exclusively. 
and not in effect, we were created to be herbivores. You see this also um, echoed in the book of Isaiah, where in the Jewish tradition, it's um, the most um, authoritative depiction of what the Messianic era might look like. And in Isaiah, we see the iconic verse that the lion shall lie down with the lamb in each straw like the ox. So even the carnivorous animals will be vegan in the Messianic era. And it says in the book of Isaiah, the reason for this is because in the Messianic era, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, which goes back to Genesis 1.29, where um, God expressed the divine will, which is to eat plants. So that's the first pillar, that it's no question, it's the ideal. The second is this, we're given the permission to eat meat in Genesis 9 for the first time. So a thousand years into the biblical story, but it's given to us is a very reluctantly given concession with lots of restrictions. So even in the giving of the permission, it's made very clear, this is not the way to go. And then the third pillar, which even if these first two pillars, first two pillars were not, were not true, would be persuasive on its own, is the Jewish or Torah mandate called Sa'ar Ba'alei which is Hebrew for the prevention of animal suffering. And this is um, a mandate based on multiple Torah verses where we're instructed not only to prevent animal suffering, but to intervene on behalf of the animal whenever we can. So when you contrast this mandate against what's happening today in animal agriculture, it could not be more clear. Animal agriculture, even in the kosher context, is desecrating this Torah mandate, and to live up to this Torah mandate, we need to consume a plant-based diet. So it's really pretty simple. It's really just those three pillars and the rest is just details. So because I wanna go back to Genesis uh, 129, um, the mandate to be herbivores, essentially. Um, I'm communicating with, uh, as you know, other faith-based organizations, Christian, Buddhist, et cetera, who went on other Jewish organizations who I know you work with as well, um, who work with these issues. Uh, but we, so we have strayed from this. If we're going to look at the, what, what the scripture says, we have strayed for, from it. But is there, in, in, in your experience, communicating with people in various, circles, religious circles, or with fellow, fellow Jews, what is um, sort of the discussion about Genesis 129 and how we have forgotten um, this very basic decree? Well, um, with respect to Genesis 129 itself, there is no debate and there has never been any debate about what it means. There is no question the original dietary instructions were to eat plants, period. But um, what has confused the issue for some people is that the permission to eat meat is granted subsequent 
to that in Genesis 9. So because uh, uh, um, is more recent, in a sense, in the biblical story or subsequent to the original demand, um, there's confusion that that somehow takes precedence. Yeah, and really, the two should not really be separated because the divine will um, always has been, in the Jewish understanding, to eat plants, period. That's never changed. They were given the permission to eat meat is a concession, but people seem to have forgotten that. Right. And you and I spoke briefly before in a prior conversation, perhaps this is related to um, also, I believe you said this is also one easily misunderstood Genesis 126, uh, Dominion. Yeah, I know. Thank you for bringing that up, Annika, because um, it is so important to get that message out. Because Genesis 126, which is um, the Dominion verse in the Bible, is the most misunderstood and mistranslated in misapplied verse in the entire Bible. And I feel pretty confident in saying that. The dominion verse where we're given dominion, to use the King James translation, where we're given dominion over the animals, it occurs in the exact same conversation. It's only three verses away. The exact same conversation where we're told to eat plants. So, it could not be more clear that the dominion verse or the granting of dominion did not give human beings license to kill animals for food. After all, it's part of the same conversation. Right. The second thing is, and um, we do hear people now um, beginning to understand that dominion, a better translation would be stewardship. The, um, of course, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is yerdu. Yerdu um, connotes kingship. Now, a king in the biblical sense is not a tyrant. A king in the biblical sense, his first obligation is to take care of the widow, the orphan, and the marginalized to take care of the flock, his people. So this is how dominion needs to be understood. We were given authority from God to take care of the animals. Essentially, we were given the responsibility to take care of them the same way a king has responsibility to take care of his subjects. Right. That's how I also, I think that's great to point out dominion, stewardship. In fact, I have this series, which this will be a part of, faith, stewardship, and or faith, sustainability, and stewardship. And I chose the term stewardship precisely yeah. to explore this spiritual religious connection between humanity and the environment and the planet. Um, so moving forward, I guess we should probably also, I, I would I'd love to talk a little bit more about theology, but um, address uh, organizationally Jewish veg and some of the things you do because it's fascinating and it's really exciting. So maybe we could just briefly touch on uh, some of the activities that um, you're involved with with Jewish Veg. Sure. 
Um, so your question is, what are some of the things we're doing? Right, yeah, nation, nationwide, yeah. mainly in the USA, correct? Right. Uh, um, uh, starting because we're in the middle of Hanukkah, so we um, just um, completed three vegan Hanukkah parties. Uh, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C., where we brought people together to celebrate the holiday in a vegan fashion. And of course, Hanukkah, uh, the themes of Hanukkah really lend themselves to this issue because we light the menorah around the winter solstice to be spreading light just when things are their darkest. And when you think about it, what we're doing at Jewish Merge is we're shining a light on really the darkest places on our planet, which is the factory farms and the slaughterhouses. Right. Spiritually, these are really the darkest places. So to be shining a light on this issue, we, we feel it's very consistent with the themes of Annika. Um, we have something called the Jewish Vegan Holiday Initiative where we're helping people celebrate all of the Jewish holidays in a vegan way. Um, most notably, that includes Passover, which is the most celebrated Jewish holiday. So we, um, last year we held five vegan Passover seders around the United States, and um, I think we'll do maybe six or seven this year. And so we're helping you celebrate all the holidays, um, Rosh Hashanah, um, Yom Kippur, Tubishvat, Sukkot, all of these holidays in a vegan fashion. Um, just a couple other initiatives, and we, there's, um, I could talk about all of them, but I don't want to spend two hours. But um, we're, very, we're well known for um, our vegan birthright trips. Um, as you may know, Israel has become, by some measures, the most vegan-friendly country in the world. Yet, um, Birthright, which sends thousands of young adults to Israel every year, um, was not even touching on this. So we, um, in partnership with an organization called Mayanot, which runs Birthright Trips, we created the first vegan Birthright Trips. These are trips to Israel that not only is the food 100% vegan, but it showcases the vegan movement in Israel, wow. which um, Birthright loves, and of course, we love it. Yeah, I would, I would like to go on one of those trips. Me, actually, here. me too. Um, I'm a little too old to go on a Birthright trip, <laughs> but um, no, our staff has a great trip. time with the young adults. Do you coordinate other types of trips to to Israel relate, uh, related around all these issues, exploring the plant-based, you know, movement no, it's there? it's funny you mentioned that because there's an age cap on birthright. So, um, yes, lots of uh, more than we can count. Um, adults have contacted us, asking us to organize a vegan tour of Israel, which yeah. we're going to do. I can't give you an exact date. But our board of directors has heard the call of so many people saying, it's great that you're doing birthright, but what about us older adults? Exactly. And, um, yeah, so we do intend to do that. It makes complete sense. That's very exciting. That's really exciting. Uh, and also, so you, I know you're 
based in the U.S., of course, working these trips to Israel, but do you foresee potentially expanding to other countries? Uh, for example, you know, in fact, uh, we've done presentations in Canada. Um, I should mention um, another um, one of our signature programs is our Speakers Bureau. So we give presentations um, mainly about the Jewish basis for a vegan lifestyle in synagogues, at Jewish community centers, at Hillel's, on college campuses, um, wherever Jews are gathered and organized. So we've given presentations in Canada, um, specifically Vancouver, um, and we're organizing now in Toronto to um, do some presentations in Toronto in 2020. And um, certainly um, all of our resources, our website, our rabbinic statement, all these things have circulated around the world. Right. So, um, no, we do have a global impact in that sense. And um, we would know we're happy to go um, to the extent our resources permitted to go anywhere, actually. The one place they probably do not need us so much is Israel itself because they have such a robust vegan movement themselves. Right, but they're obviously natural collaborator, collaborators. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see I can see why a lot of people also stateside would be very excited to go there for various trips. Uh, so some, uh, you and I have spoken before, so I wanted to touch on some of the other things we talked about. Uh, I know one issue is very controversial, the um, so now we're moving around the world, actually, with some themes. So in Europe, uh, one of the issues that we, we spoke about earlier, the oxymoron that is um, humane slaughter. Of course, this is all around the world and, and as a marketing tool in the U.S., but we, we touched on um, the controversy around kosher slaughter um, and some of um, the work you're doing with that or, or awareness um, about issues in Europe, particularly. I know this is controversial, so you want to touch on that a little bit. Well, first of all, um, I think it's important to say that Jewish Verge is agnostic on the question, is kosher slaughter better or worse? Because it's our position, there is no good way to slaughter an animal. So to, it's kind of absurd to argue, well, this way is better than that way. Um, I will say, when the kosher laws were written about a thousand years ago, the actual details of slaughter, um, it was an improvement over what was happening in the world at the time. Um, probably these days, you could say the world is caught up. And it's, um, so you really, it's harder to make the case that it's better or worse. But here's the issue. The laws, the kosher laws, the laws of cash root were intended to make eating meat difficult. The restrictions are numerous. So it was, but what happened to subvert the, to subvert this and undermine it is that a kosher meat industry arose um, after the industrial revolution, making kosher meat readily available in, in stores, especially kosher stores. So now kosher meat, especially if you live in a big city, 
um, is very easy to obtain. It was never supposed to be like this. It was always supposed to be difficult to produce and to obtain. Okay. So it's really, it's turned cash rude almost upside down. The second thing is, which we've seen most notably in the case of agroprocessors, um, which was the largest kosher meat um, by VAR company in the United States, where it was discovered that uh, they were not only slaughtering animals in a way that uh, did not look kosher, they were abusing um, Guatemalan and Mexican immigrant labor. And Agripro eventually the CEO of agroprocessors was prosecuted and convicted and sent to federal prison. Wow. But um, this just, you know, goes to show how the kosher meat industry has really gone astray. Well, and that fits right in with, as we were discussing earlier, entire animal agriculture slaughterhouse, slaughterhouses are not really healthy places for, for um, humans either. No, no, definitely not. So rare human that actually would enjoy that work or is there because they grew up wanting to. These are jobs that generally people, they're not really excited to be there. Uh, very difficult, difficult um, taxing work and also taxing on the surrounding communities, as I understand. So, and it's very interesting to hear this uh, about, about kosher and how it's really also strayed, but it, it also kind of fits into the bigger picture of how the entire system has sort of just completely imploded and is not um, is not on it's it's just simply not on a path as, as we know it's not sustainable and uh, and so that's why we're here talking about these issues that's why Jewish Fed exists right I mean, right we're all talking about these issues now and awareness is growing I think also I saw on your website um, a quote I believe by Rabbi David Rosen veganism is the new kosher the new kosher. yes yes Right. Yeah. No, I love Rabbi David Rosen. He's um, a very prominent Orthodox rabbi. Um, he's based in Jerusalem now. He used to be the chief rabbi in Ireland. And wow. um, the reason he says um, that veganism, and I'm quoting directly here, he says veganism is a new cash route and any other type of cash route or kosher is highly problematic. And the reason he says this, and the reason, frankly, you see 75 rabbis um, on that rabbinic statement is that if Sar Ba'alei which you heard me talk about a few minutes ago, this mandate to prevent animal suffering, if that is being violated in the process of um, producing meat and how the animals are treated, then it doesn't matter how you slaughter them because the entire process was enabled by a violation of Sarba Lehayim, right? right? To back up a second, just to really put this in, in context, no kosher meat company raises its own animals. This is not widely understood. No kosher meat company raises its own animal. They buy their animals from the factory farming system, primarily. Right? The same place as Oscar Mayer, Tyson Chicken, or any of these other big secular meat companies get their animals. So the kosher meat company takes ownership 
of the animal at the door of the slaughterhouse. So, but of course, Tsar Baal is being violated essentially from day one of the animal's life in the factory farming system. So the entire process is being enabled by a sin. And this will make sense to anybody, religious or not. In the Jewish ethical system, you cannot have a mitzvah, a good deed, enabled by a sin. Right? Makes sense. Like you can't rob a bank to get money to give to charity. Right, yeah. Right, that would not, that would not cut it. So even if you consider, and this is just for the purposes of the conversation, even if you consider kosher slaughter to be a mitzvah in the Jewish context, if it's enabled by a sin, it can't be a mitzvah. So therefore, that's why David Rosen says, any other type of kosher besides veganism is highly problematic because it's really the way the animal is slaughtered, which is what makes it kosher. It's a moot point because it only got to that point because of violations of a Torah mandate. Right. The entire raising of the animal was a sin. Yes. The entire existence, the, the way the animal was treated prior to arriving right. at the slaughterhouse. Right. I understand. It's very interesting. And it's why do, this is a very broad question, but why do you think people don't think about, we don't think about this? Obviously, I know you, you have been vegan since 2010, correct? Yes. Um, and mm. I've been vegan 2014. I mean, we, we are kind of divorced from this, like, it's just a very basic awareness of, of really how did this you know, you are at some point in your life buying kosher meat, maybe not thinking about mm -hmm. hmm, how how was the animal raised. Um, I certainly know I was. Um, I'm not Jewish, but I spent many years consuming dairy, meat, etc. You know, the common vegan story. There was a period in our life when we didn't think about this. So what sort of in the Jewish reference, um, you know, you do so much awareness. That's a fundamental you know, pillar of your activities as the education as well. So do you see a lot of aha moments with people when you discuss this aspect of kosher? Well, here is, uh, you know, the interesting thing, which is, although Jewish Verj stands on such a strong Jewish foundation, yeah, such a strong foundation, truly, we shouldn't even need to exist uh, when you think about it. But... In reality, I would say even in an Orthodox setting, but certainly um, this is the case in other denominations of Judaism, people are motivated. Um, they have a sort of a personal value system, which um, has its sources in, from different places, including Judaism. And so when we're talking to people about the way the animals are treated, it offends their very basic personal principles, their own internal values. So in a sense, in one sense, our job is very difficult. We're asking people to change what they eat three times a day, whenever they eat. But at the same time, we're not trying to change anyone's mind. We're just trying to get them to connect what they're doing with what they already believe. 
because what's happening in animal agriculture today is gravely offensive to virtually any decent person's own value system. Right. Right. And I had this, one of my actually final questions was, was talking about just that your Jewish veg role in the paradigm shift. Um, because Jewish veg, you are part of this paradigm shift of awareness. Um, you know, plant, there's nothing new about plant-based eating or humans existing as primarily herbivores, but this whole movement of, of veganism. And as you said, Jewish veg shouldn't need to exist, but you do. And it's a fairly new organization, as with many of these other faith-based um, animal advocacy and vegan organizations, which are really exciting. At the same time, it would be nice to envision a world where you didn't need to exist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but but I, I see the work you're doing. I'm absolutely fascinated, very excited. Um, and to me, it signals it's part of the paradigm shift. Um, so yeah, if we, I, I just wanted to touch on that maybe in closing, is, is the Jewish Fed role in the paradigm shift? I know you work with other organizations and um, while we might like to think about a world where we don't need to talk about these things, just that these things wouldn't exist, that we would have a more holistic relationship with our fellow species and the environment and not have these sort of very huge looming, looming problems that sometimes you can feel quite hopeless. But you're doing what I like about talking with um, you and the other organizations is you're, in, you're making an impact and you're um, making an influence also in this um, very, very uh, fascinating way through Judaism, through religious and cultural beliefs, uh, which extends to so many people on the planet. Um, so just if you have any thoughts about that, the uh, paradigm shift, and this is something that you work with yeah? regularly. Well, I know I love that term, paradigm shift, because that's exactly what we're seeing. I'm certainly on one level, this work can be very depressing because we know what's happening out there and it's happening on a massive scale in animal agriculture. But the thing that um, um, really gives us not just hope because this isn't about hope, this is actually happening. The vegan movement is growing at an incredible pace. Just what I've seen in my seven years on the job um, has been remarkable and there's new things happening. It seems like practically every day or certainly every week, there's an announcement. This fast food chain is introducing um, a vegan option in all of its restaurants. This fashion designer is not going to use fur. Um, I could go on and on. It's really amazing. And this makes our job much easier because in Judaism, um, it actually says in the Jewish tradition, the rabbis cannot impose a restriction that the people cannot accept, right? Even if it's like a highly ethical thing, if the people can't implement it, you can't impose it. But and that excuse actually applied to this issue for maybe centuries. You couldn't ask people to make this transition because it would be very difficult to do. But today, that excuse is out the window. Right. Because the marketplace, thankfully, has furnished us with so many plant-based options. 
in our restaurants, in our supermarkets, in, um, the vegan cookbooks, in our bookstores, the recipes online, on and on. Not, there's no excuse not to do it. The resources are there to help you. The products are there for your shopping cart and for your table. Exactly. Yeah. It's very exciting. Um, speaking of resources, as we close off our conversation here, uh, Jewish Veg resources. People can go to the website. Yeah, we really encourage um, people to do that. Of course, the most visited part of our website are the recipes. So, um, of course, a lot of traditional Jewish recipes have animal products in them, but we have vegan versions of virtually all of them. And you can make them sometimes um, even better than the original version without hurting it. Exactly. Sometimes it's just I I become so accustomed to vegan eating now, and it's it's and plant based. It's exciting, and there's something absolutely delicious about opening up to a world of using you know plant based ingredients. But so the website jewishveg dot org org. So people yes. can go to jewishveg dot org. I'm curious um, for. Are there any hard copy resources or any? Um, no, for the, sure. The... Thank you. Yeah, a couple of things um, I might mention. I'm going to mention three things. Um, first is our infographics, which you can either download from our website um, or we you can order them through our online store and we'll ship them to you. This is a four-page infographic, which explains... Um, in sort of a colorful, almost kind of whimsical way, what the Jewish basis for a vegan lifestyle is. So it's um, people love these infographics because you can digest the entire thing in like three or four minutes and you have a good fundamental grasp on what probably took me 15 minutes to explain today. <laughs> the second thing is um, our v on our online store, our vegan Passover cookbook. Um, it's our best-selling book, and it's really a great cookbook. The recipes are great um, all year long, but specifically they're kosher for Passover when there is you know, additional dietary restrictions. So it's um, people love this book because that's all they need to create a vegan Passover center in their homes and eat vegan during the eight days of Passover. And the third thing is we just added this to our book collection. We have a vegan children's book well. <clears throat> called um, Happy Animals. And um, yeah, really, it's a great book to give to young children, which presents um, compassion to animals in a very gentle way. And we're specifically talking about farm animals here. And it's, um, so it's a great book to introduce these issues to young children. And it's written by two Jewish authors who are supporters of our organization. But the book is um, not Jewish at all. Okay, great. Well, so you have, yeah, that's very exciting. You have uh, resources that can be downloaded. Of course, your entire website is a, is a big and growing resource. And then also um, print material that people can order, which is, which is um I'm going to have to look into the vegan Passover. I'm very curious right. about myself and the children's book. All right, that's great. Well, I want to, um, I'm very thankful 
Um, again, as I said, this is going to be one of the first podcasts for Pacific Roots Magazine, uh, which is, um, as you know, it's a fairly new website um, doing this technology very grassrootsy and uh, just getting started. So thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your time. And um, oh, I had one more question. Are there names for the days of Hanukkah? No, no, I mean, do the different nights have different names? Yeah, or themes. There's just six, uh, today's the sixth day. That's it. There's eight no, days, yeah, eight, eight days, yeah. Okay. Um, I want to wish you. Sorry, go ahead. No, thank you so much, Anika. And of course, um, it's you know quite a coincidence. It helped me remember the pre correct pronunciation of your name because it kind of sounds like Anika. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What I used to say growing up, Anika, like Anika. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I wish you a wonderful sixth night and the next two nights. So, and um, happy New Year. And thank you to anybody who's going to tune into this. And I look forward to staying in touch and seeing more of the work that Jewish Reg is doing um, nationwide in the U.S. and globally. Thank you so much, Annika. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to get this message out to your audience. Thank you. All right. Well, we will be in touch. Okay. Have a very happy and healthy New Year. Thank you. You as well. Okay, thanks again, Anika. Take care. This is Anika. Thank you for listening to the Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Mm -hmm.